In this fifth episode of the PK Experience, I interview author Mark T. Sullivan. Now, I ended up meeting Mark. I didn't know who he was. I was at a business conference, and we were at a dinner together, and I ended up sitting next to him, got to talking to him, and um, Mark was telling me about this book that he recently wrote called Beneath a Scarlet Sky, which... If you haven't heard of it before, it's a novel. It's based on a true story of a World War II Italian man, young man, who ended up saving a lot of Jews from extermination and the incredible, um, incredible feats that he did in order to do that. So as Mark was telling me the story, I was absolutely you know, intrigued and fascinated by it. But uh, what I come to understand was there's a story behind him writing this story, which is just as fascinating and compelling. And it was the story of Mark and his life and how he really came to a watershed moment and was facing, uh, well, without giving too much away, he was facing, it was a life and death moment. We'll just leave it at that. And, uh, and then how this book sort of came to be from that watershed moment. Truly, truly fascinating story. The book itself is getting rave reviews um, on Amazon. I'm looking at it right now. He's gotten over 13,200 five-star reviews, which if you're on Amazon at all, you know that that many reviews in and of itself is amazing, but to have that many reviews and have them be all five-star is just absolutely incredible. I think they're actually talking about turning this book into a movie, which would be amazing. I would love to see it on the big screen, but Without further ado, I'm going to actually just turn it over to the interview because it's fascinating. I want to dive right into it. Enjoy it. Leave a comment. Let me know uh, what you think. Thanks. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Mark Sullivan, which, by the way, I have to ask you, is it, it's Mark T. Sullivan, is it not? It's both. Because Mark what? Sullivan is a powerful name, but Mark T. Sullivan is, is uh I mean, that's Pulitzer Prize sounding. <laughs> um, when did you start adding the T? Is that, a, uh, is that an author thing or is that um, uh, just something you decided to do at some point? Uh, well, you know, I was Mark T. Sullivan for a long time. Then when I started working with Patterson, uh, I just dropped the T and that's just, I just left it at that. Gotcha. So you have how many books out now? 18. 18 books. Um, that's quite an accomplishment. And, and right now, um, the, your latest book is the most successful book of all the books that you've written so far. Is that correct? Uh, I don't know about that, but it's, it's certainly the one that's getting just a ton of attention at the moment. Uh, it's beneath the scarlet sky. It's based on a true untold story of world war two. And, uh, it's a pretty amazing story. It took me 10 years to write. Uh, that's amazing. The, you know, you, you and I connected a little over a week ago. We met uh, at a conference, and um, you started to tell me about how the story came about. And what was so fascinating to me was sort of the behind-the-scenes story, and, and you go into it a little bit in the preface of the book. Can you tell us a little bit how, where you were at, at this point in your life and, and how this story came to be? Because that, to me, is a story within the story. You break it up there a little, Peter, but I think I get the gist of it. Okay. Um, yeah, I was at the lowest point in my life uh, the day I heard the story. I had uh, my younger brother, and he was my best friend, had drunk himself to death. I'd written a draft of a novel that no one liked and no one wanted to represent, and I was involved in an ongoing business dispute that 
left me on the verge of personal bankruptcy. And on a drive to a Costco on a wintry afternoon in February of 2006, I realized I was worth more dead than alive and considered driving into a bridge abutment so my wife and children could collect on the insurance. Um, thankfully, I didn't do it, uh, but I got to the Costco parking lot as rattled as I've ever been in my life, and I put my head on the steering wheel, and I begged God and the universe for a story, one that I could get lost in and had purpose to. And uh, The crazy thing is that evening, three hours later, I, my wife forces me to go to a dinner party that I really did not want to attend, but we had canceled with these people several times. And I go to the dinner party and I hear the first snippets of the story. Hmm. And I'm stunned because I say to myself, well, it can't be true. We would have heard it before. But then I learned that the guy is alive, Pino Lella, in Italy. And I came home and I told my wife I was going to go to Italy to chase a 60-year-old war story. Wow. And she, through her great credit, she said, bye. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, let me back up for a second, though, because you, at this point in your life, I mean, obviously dealing with a, a family tragedy, um, yeah. did you not feel at that point, though, with all the other books that you'd written that that there was purpose behind them or that you felt fulfilled by them or, or was it really more just family circumstance that, that caused the, that sort of, uh, moment in your life, that milestone moment in your life. Mother's death was the primary part, but you know, I was at a point in my career where, um, I'd gone through a lull. I mean, when you're a writer, you go through peaks and valleys. It's just what happens in terms of, income and critical praise or whatever and um, I'd taken it in the chops a bunch right around that time. I'd had to fire a bunch of people that I was associated with in writing and I was being told that you know I'd probably never publish again under my own name and it was just a, a very depressing time for me and uh, really took me to again my lowest point in my life. Uh, and yet now, today, I look back on that as the one of the greatest days of my life. That's so amazing. So in full transparency, where we met was at a, um, a Tony Robbins uh, seminar, and and that sort of the, the perspective that you get sometimes on what you think may be your darkest days can potentially be your lightest days. Out of curiosity, was that something that you've gotten sort of in that personal development space, or was that something that you'd kind of come to on your own? I'd come to it on my own yeah. to realize it. I mean, I knew, I realized within a month, six weeks, that it was the greatest story I'd ever heard. And uh, and I knew that I it given me purpose. I wanted to tell this man's story because when I went to Italy and spent the first three weeks with Pino Lella, um, I came back a fundamentally different person. You know, I, I've been active in, in personal development for 26, 27 years, and uh, I'd sort of gotten off that train at that time in my life, and meeting Pino and learning what he'd gone through and understanding his perspective on life, and especially his understanding of how we deal with life's tragedies, it changed me. It gave me a new perspective on life, you know, not just tragedies, just 
how do you how do you live day to day? And uh, he taught me that, and you know, I'm sure that other people had tried to teach me that before, but it wasn't until I heard it from somebody who was 78, who had gone through a lifetime and had managed to recover from seriously brutal things that happened to him in the last two years of World War II. Mm-hmm. When, when, when you heard about this story, when did you know that, like, what was it about this story that made you feel like this is worth the greatest story in the world to be told? Well, I mean, it was a story about a 17-year-old boy who joins the Catholic underground, getting Jews out of Nazi-occupied Italy, and he did it by working with priests in a school up in the Alps in Casalpina, and they would take the Jews up over the top of this mountain called the Gropera, and over and into Switzerland, where it was neutral. And that in and of itself was an amazing story, especially when I went to the Gropera and I could see what it took. I mean, Pino would typically try to downplay this stuff, saying, oh, any competent alpinist could have done it. (laughs) But, you know, I'm a pretty competent alpinist myself. And when I saw what they went up, and you know, in street shoes, most of the, the refugees and the, the Jews trying to escape, I was stunned. And so there was that, and then meeting him and, and listening to the story and realizing there was much more to it, that he had become the driver to this mysterious general who was the second most powerful German in Nazi-occupied Italy, and that he had become a spy inside the German high command. Uh, I I was blown away by it, but the more I talked to him, the more I realized that there was also this incredible spiritual story. You know, how how do we maintain our perspective and our belief in the basic goodness of life when horrible things happen to you? Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a combination of all those three things. And plus when I realized that people didn't know much about the war in Italy, you know, the focus was always on Germany or France or, you know, Russia or what have you. And right. there was just, there, there were books written about it, but there was very little that, that, that I read that managed to sum it up the emotional journey that Pino Lella had gone through. And uh, that's what I really wanted to tell was that emotional journey because he was devastated a number of times, you know, when we were talking. It was interesting. I, I spent time with his ex-wife, Yvonne, who's also his best friend. And I must have been there almost three weeks. And we we went out and uh, to dinner, the three of us together. And Pino, normally very gregarious guy, you know, just wonderful to be around, genteel, got great manners. And uh, he was very quiet. And he's not like that. He's, he's very gregarious, loves to talk and chat. And, and uh, his wife said, Pino, what's the matter with you? And, and she says, you're so quiet. And he said, well... Yvonne, you've known me for nearly 40 years. How many times have you seen me cry? And she said, cry? I've never seen you cry. And he looked over his shoulder at me, and I was in the back seat, and said, Mark, um, you've known me for less than three weeks. How many times have you seen me cry? And I said, oh, 10, 12 times. And she was shocked about that because he had never opened up. He had buried this story for, for necessarily so. I mean, it took me a long time to figure out in my own mind that he had obviously suffered from PTSD and he had buried this story um, to be able to deal with it mentally. And, you know, the more you find out about that, the, 
the more you, have, you find out just how common that is. Um, would you say that that is something that a lot of, uh, you know, warriors, uh, military veterans, would you say that that's, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a cathartic thing for them as well to share that story and to get that out. Is that, is that a necessary process, do you believe? Or, or not, you know, if somebody knows somebody that's been through, you know, obviously we're losing a lot of World War II veterans every day now. Should these stories be out? Should they be telling these stories? I, I think they should. You know, it, it, 6,000 veterans die a day. 6,000 people who were in the war die a day. And so 6,000 stories vanish every day. If I hadn't gone to that dinner party and heard the first snippets of that story, Pino Lella's story never would have come to light. It would have died. The people within his family knew parts of it about Father Ray and Casalpina and that he'd driven for the general. But they didn't know the specifics. He had never told them. And, uh, you know, you, you, I, it was cathartic for him, but it was also deeply for these stories. Um, I spent an incredible amount of time going back and forth and over and over again with, with him over stories. And he would gloss it at first, try to downplay it at first. And it was only when I would go in again and again and again that he began to reveal the true story. Um, I don't know if he would have said it was a cathartic thing. Uh, it was it was brutal on him. It was brutal on me. It was the most emotional thing I've ever gone through. Uh, being oh, Mark, did we lose you? With him and can you hear me? Uh, yeah, sorry, you cut out there for a second. Okay. Um, oh, what was I saying? The, the it was it was a brutal journey for him emotionally, telling me the story. Um, when I met him, when he picked me up at the airport the first time, uh, he was you know bouncing all over the place. He was 78, 79 years old, and drove like a maniac. I've never never been in a car with anybody who could drive like that ever, and uh, scared the bejesus out of me, you know and uh, but by the end of that three weeks, he had physically and mentally aged. You know, I could see it. It, it was wow. tough on him, you know, and it was tough on me, too. It was, as I said, it was the most emotional thing I've ever done as a writer to go through that experience. Now, how has, how has that affected his family? Um, as you said, his wife that known him for so long didn't even know about this story. So how has that impacted his relationships with his own family? Do they... Do they embrace it? Do they? How has that changed any of his That's relationships? That's because I was just over in Italy and I, I spent some time with Yvonne, who I who's a friend of mine and I like her very much. And she said, you know, in many ways, it's like realizing that you lived with a stranger, you know, that somebody held back this part of her life and somebody that she she didn't know. Hmm. And I said to her, I said, do you remember when? We had the conversation in the car about how many times he cried, and she said, I do remember it. And I said, you got mad at me. You were angry at me that, that I had heard the story, and you had not. And, uh, and I didn't know what to say. Um, and I, I still don't quite know what to say. He, he needed to tell the story. Um, I think because I was an independent third party, it was probably easier. But I also pushed him. You know, I was... 
when I went there, I tried to write it as a as a journalist and, and trying to tell it as a from a historical, pure historical point of view. I realized as the years went on that so many people had died and so many the Germans had burned so many documents that I wasn't going to be able to get the same kind of corroborative evidence that say Laura Hildebrand had in Unbroken. Um, but I still realized that the emotional arc of the story had to be told. Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided to tell it as a novel. Um, uh, very interesting. You had mentioned in the book, too, that um, I guess in the Italian culture that they really don't talk about the war uh, much and, and how, um, it's what did they call it, like the Forgotten War or something like that? Yeah, that's what historians called it. You know, they've called it the Forgotten Front because it's just never received the same sort of attention as, you know, D-Day, the Battle for France, the entire Western Front, the Eastern Front. You know, Italy was sort of this forgotten place. And a lot of what you know, what I was told by talking to former partis- members of the Partisan Resistance, Pino, and other people was that they just didn't talk about it. And it largely... They didn't talk about it because of the kind of savagery and retribution killing that went on in the past four or five days um, of the war. And I remember talking to one guy and he, he said, yeah, I, I've never really talked about this. And I realized four or five years ago that I needed to, that people needed to know what had happened. And he actually went to you know, high schools in Milan and uh, kids laughed at him. They said, well, that never happened. Hmm. It never happened because people don't talk about it. And because people don't talk about it, people won't remember. Mm-hmm. And that's a dangerous thing. You know, you, you want to understand what happened at that kind of point in history so that we don't repeat it. Absolutely. I think, <clears throat> I think um, to your credit, you went into this with a genuine desire to learn and passion about this story. And also, uh, like you said, you were, I'm, I'm gathering from you a little bit that you sort of didn't take no for an answer kind of thing when you went there and said, this story really needs to be told. Um, and I wonder if that, you know, for anybody that's listening to this, that has maybe a grandfather or, uh, or somebody that served in that, in that war that, that there's that desire there that we go to to under to truly understand what really happened, so that it, like you said, it can be dangerous to not tell these stories. Yes. Um, so a lot of I think a lot of credit absolutely goes to you to, to help him open up and and to share this story. That's quite remarkable. Um, so you grew up in Montana, is that correct? No, I grew up outside of Boston. Oh, okay. Town of Boston. I've been in Montana for almost twenty years. Okay, and yeah. how did you get into? You got into journalism first. I did. I knew I wanted to be a writer from the time I was seven. Uh, I was it just it was what I was going to do, and you know I wrote off and on all the way through. And I got to college, and I was a writing and English major. And when I graduated from college, I went into the Peace Corps because I wanted to have some kind of experience other than um, you know growing up in suburbia, et cetera. And it was there that I realized that I wanted to get a job where I was forced to write all the time. And so I went to the, I came back after Peace Corps and I applied to Northwestern's uh, Medill School of Journalism and was accepted there, went to school there and became a, 
a journalist and then an investigative journalist. And that training, which was about nine, 10 years of my career, um, really set me up to be able to write and to work as a novelist. You said that you knew at the age of seven. I've, whenever I talk to people and they say, oh, I knew exactly. I spoke to a, a friend of my sister's not too long ago, and she said she wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. And, she's like, and she said, I knew this ever since when I was a little kid. I said, how do you, how do you know that you want to? I mean, that's such an interesting path. Now, writer maybe is a little bit more broad, but I'm always interested to hear when people say they knew at a very, very young age because I'm just fascinated by so many things and but you had a, a specific track. What was? How did you know? Um, I got in a fist fight in parochial <laughs> school when I was in second grade, and during the fight, um, a nun named Sister Mary Joseph, who was the vice principal, and she was an honest to God six footer. <laughs> she was a big woman, and she was wearing the habit, and she picked me up and hung me on a hook, you know, by the we used to have these tab things. And I figured hell was to pay because my mother was her best friend. And I figured she was going to tell my mother and, oh, my God, I was going to be in big trouble. <laughs> and, uh, and this was also a time when corporal punishment was allowed in parochial school. So I figured I, at the very least I was going to get a swatting. Yeah. And instead she said uh, your penance, and this was the word she used, um, is to enter the school-wide writing contest, grades one through eight. And I have no idea why she said it to this day. Huh. Uh, but I was petrified, so I went home, and I didn't tell my mother what had happened. I just said, I'm, I'm going upstairs to write a story for the short story contest. And I went up, and I sat in my room, and I was sweating it. I had no idea what to write. And maybe a half an hour, 40 minutes of you know just really being anxiety and ridden. And I was like, you know, I got I to gotta find a story. And all of a sudden, this rabbit went burning through our backyard with a dog chasing it and disappeared into the cornfield across the street. And I went, okay, I'm going to write about that. And so I did. I wrote this story about this rabbit getting chased all over by this dog and he, the rabbit's just trying to make its way home. And anyway, long story short, the story wins. And wow. uh, I had to read it in front of the whole school and the whole school loved it and cheered. And I was like, okay. I guess I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so by threat of corporal punishment, it got beaten out of you. You're going to be a damn writer whether you like it or not. It's okay. I have, well, you know, it seemed that everybody was surprised except for her. Hmm. In fact, you know, one of the teachers called up my parents, did you help him write this? And my father's like, we had no idea what he was writing. We knew he was working on something, but we never saw it. And hmm. So anyway, so I won. She saw a gift, and apparently. Yeah. yeah. Because that's, that's a pretty specific uh, consequence. I know, right? Yeah, interesting. <laughs> so, I, you know, I love story. I love the idea of, you know, when I think about story and, and really the as a tool to pass on lesson, as a tool to pass on, you know, visceral experience, um, yeah. story is so powerful. Um so how did you get into, uh, or tell us a little bit about how you go about crafting story and how you, like, what, sort of like a bloodhound, what ideas do you, do you stick on? How do you know where a good story goes? That's part of your journalistic, I think, background to sniff those out, but how do you develop these ideas? Well, I mean, first of all, a story's got to hit me, you know, at a gut level. I have to believe that 
whatever the premise or the kernel of it or the person or the character is, is, is fascinating enough to me just almost immediately that I would consider spending anywhere from six to 18 months to 10 years writing a book. Mm. So it has to, it has to hit me within that kind of, is, as you said, that reporter sensibility, uh, is it, do I, I have a nose for story? I was naturally good at it. Um, you know, I think all good storytellers know when they hear one, you know, they, it's like, that's pretty amazing. That's something I need to keep looking at. And then I'm always skeptical. I always try to shoot it down because I'm always trying to convince myself that I can't spend this amount of time. But if the story keeps nagging at me, I know that it's there and I'll, I'll set to work on it. Um, doesn't mean that I won't abandon it at some point or put it down, but I'm, I'm always looking for something that excites me, that makes me want to go in. And it's, it, it suggests a story that I would want to read, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Anne Rice, the, she wrote Interview with the Vampire and everything. I saw her interviewed by her son. And one of the things that she counsels people is write the book you want to read. That's the one you want to write, mm-hmm. not the one that, that you think is going to sell or, you know, have a, have an effect. Write the one you want to read, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's exactly dead on. If 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 it's a story that I would want to read, if it's a story that fascinates me enough to start digging, then you know I usually have a pretty good sense that it's there. Um, I'm always trying to write a one sentence description of it too, mm-hmm. so that I understand what the story is. And that one sentence description will often change during or modify during the course of it as I find the real story. Because finding the real story is a process of revision. And you know, writing, did I work? Am I my my explaining this character in the, in their full three dimensionality? Is 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 this character human or inhumane? Is the char- is it someone we would recognize even though they may be a negative person? Um, you know, people will often say, well, how could you write that character? Or, you know, how could you say that? And I said, I didn't say that. The character did. Mm-hmm. It's a difference, right? You, you, you have to learn how to step back and understand that when you're writing well, characters are sort of on their own. They kind of speak to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they're not speaking to you, you don't understand them enough. And so I'm always trying to understand the characters at a deep level. And out of them, usually the story comes. Certainly with Pino Lella, I mean, I had, a, I, I had an outline, right? I, I, I was able to follow certain facts that, you know, he left Milan after the bombing of his house in September of 1943, ends up at this Catholic boys' school. The priest, Father Ray, is courageous. He takes him and trains him on all these trails and routes because he knows that they're going to begin getting Jews out of Italy. Yeah. Um, it, the process to me sort of sounds like uh, was it was it Michelangelo or Da Vinci where they would start to go to work on a, on the block, and they'd you know they said the ba- they're chipping away everything that's not a part of the masterpiece, and yes. then what's revealed is the masterpiece. That kind of makes me when you think about the characters already there, like you're just trying to find out who he isn't or who she isn't, and and then what's revealed. So you, right. you have to have you have to have a very I think fundamental understanding of humanity do you not i mean to be a great writer you have to you better understand psychology and you better you better be able to relate to people if you're not 
open enough to understand people and listen to them and try to learn more and more and more about the human condition, I don't think you're ever going to be very successful. Right. And, and also for yourself, I would imagine, to get your own filter out of the way so that you can truly see things as they are. It's true. I mean, the job of a novelist is to be a professional schizophrenic. That's how I've described it. Yeah, you do. You have to sit in a room by yourself and let various voices of people who aren't there speak through you. Mm -hmm. It's it's a it's an odd way to make a living. I mean, I love it. It's it's what I live to do. Uh, But you have to get your head around that, and you have to be constantly willing to challenge your own thoughts about characters. And you do have to get rid of your own filter because the way I look at life is fundamentally different than the way most of my characters look at life. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I can understand how people think. I can understand how people are affected by tragedy or, you know, some joyous event. And I think I've gotten better and better at that the longer I've been in the game. Mm Mm-hmm. What would you say are the elements of not just a really good story, but of a great story? How does how, if if somebody's a writer and they want to learn how to write better stories, or uh, I'm in the marketing world and I want to communicate, you know, to to prospects and things, certain things. What are the components that make up an epic story? I think you know some of the components are a character that we can sympathize with, a character who's going to grow in a gigantic arc because they are going to be constantly challenged to grow. Um, we're not interested in stories about characters that are static, you know, that, that people who begin on page one the same and end on page 450 the same person because that's fundamentally uninteresting. And it's not true. Everybody changes every moment, whether or not they admit it to themselves. But the other thing is they have to be up against some monumental task or person, the antagonist, the worthy opponent. And that worthy opponent, you know, for example, in Beneath the Scarlet Sky, the first worthy opponent is the mountain itself. Mm. How, does, how does he manage to grow enough to be able to lead these people at 17 over the top of the Alps and into Switzerland? And then, you know, then the worthy opponent after that becomes the general. The general Layers, who was this mysterious, powerful guy in, in Nazi-occupied Italy, you know, he did his best to burn his way out of history. And so I had to, what I could find, you know, the people I was able to interview gave me an understanding of him, and he was a formidable person, absolutely formidable. Um, one of his comments that Pino heard him say in that, his ministers heard him say was that I did well before Adolf Hitler, I did well under Adolf Hitler, and I'll do well after Hitler. Mm. And so that kind of person with that kind of worldview, if you will, automatically forced Pino to become bigger, to to challenge himself, to to become a different person. And I think that's what we want to read. We always are interested in somebody who had to go beyond what we would believe a human is capable of. Mm -hmm. And that's how people become heroic. And I don't believe that people are born with heroic tendencies. I think heroism comes out of situations. It's when ordinary people are faced with situations that most people would crack and have a nervous breakdown under. Mm -hmm. They go on 
they rise to the occasion. And it's very often, you know, a, a small, a quote, small person, a 17-year-old boy in this case, who rises and becomes this phenomenal hero. You know, even though he doesn't, he never considered himself. He still doesn't to this day. Hmm. He doesn't consider himself a hero. Uh, that seems to be a common trait with a lot of um, survivors of battles. Um, what what type of resistance did you face over the the ten year journey? Did you fa- did you face any resistance from from any Nazi sympathizers or you know anybody Not- that didn't want this story told? Well. The, the biggest resistance I faced was the lack of documentation because in the last 10 years of the war, uh, 10 days of the war in Italy and elsewhere, um, this organization tote that the general ran in Italy destroyed millions of documents. You know, they burned them all over Italy. And so I was, I was, that was a challenge. And then there were uh, people, historians who had written I think there's been one book written about the organization Toad, and it's largely an apology um, because it totally sidesteps, for example, the the issue of slavery um, during World War II. The Germans, people will often talk about all the great fortifications they built on the Western Wall that that Americans and and British forces saw on D-Day. And those fortifications were built on slave labor. Slaves built them. And people didn't understand this. And so I, you know, in the book, you, you begin to understand how that happened. Um, and there's a, a certain resistance. They'll, they'll call them forced laborers, the apologists. And I just go, no, they're slaves, man. They were, they were taken against their will. They were brought, you know, halfway across Europe and they were thrown into factories or onto uh, construction lines. Uh, they had little P's on them if they came from Poland, E if they came from Eastern Europe, etc. And, and they wore, many of them wore these gray drab outfits, so I called them the gray men. And you know, th- there was that kind of constant um, issue trying to find things. There was also that you know, Pino had buried the general's name in his mind. He, he always spoke of him as Mon Generale, my general. And... Um, but it wasn't, he had, by the time that I got into him, he had basically buried his name. He always thought his name was, when he would think back, Kaufman or Hoffman, Hoffman. And, and so I spent three years looking for a Kaufman or Hoffman, and he wasn't there. And uh, it was only when we went to, I went to the German war archives in Berlin and in Friedrichsburg, Germany, working with a Fulbright scholar that we started to find Layer's name with associated with said Hauptmann, which he was a general, and Hauptmann in one sense in German means um, captain, like it's, it's an actual rank, but it also means in another context, boss. Hmm. And Kaufmann, wait, in German it's, it would be almost like a K, that H, and then Kaufmann, uh, I always thought it was K-A-U-F-M-A-N-N, and what he was actually hearing, and this was the, the Fulbright kid who explained this to me, he was hearing K-O-P-F-M-A-N-N, which means headman in Germany, another word for boss. Hmm. And so what he was hearing was the, the, the German soldiers calling General Layers the boss, which he was. There was only one person more powerful than him in Italy, and that was the field marshal. Uh, but the field marshal relied largely on layers because 
Layers was responsible for building things, everything from machine gun nests to uh, cannons to parts to whatever they needed. His job was to supply it. But once you know, once I found layers and was able to show Pino several pictures of him, he identified him, and and then I was off and going. But it was still like pulling teeth. Um, part of the issue was I don't speak Italian. I always had to have interpreters with me. I don't speak German. I had to have interpreters with me, um, and that took time and money. You know, I would I would go for a while and I would raise funds for another trip. Um, I went over four or five times over the course of ten years. Uh, attempting to get it, get the story right. But at a certain point, you know, so many people, again, had died and so many of the documents had been destroyed that at a certain point I said, I have to write this as a novel because, you know, if you get, in my mind, as, I mean, as, as a journalist, if I get one thing wrong, I've screwed it all up. Mm-hmm. As a novelist, my job is different. My job is to, or at least the way I saw my job was to tell the story so that it had the same emotional impact that hearing it had on me the first time. Mm-hmm. That obviously the, the story it had on him. And so I was constantly trying to write it as if you were sitting on Pino's shoulder. And that is the way the book is written. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing that people really respond to is they felt like they were there climbing the mountains with him. And part of that is because I've gone and climbed those mountains. You know, I've been up there. I've done it. And I was also able to you know, get inside Layer's head through people who had known him for 30 years after the war, uh, including his daughter. And using that and my journalistic skills, I, you know, I, I told the story as best and as clearly that I could. For exa- but, for example, you know, the, the, there was no way I could tell the story dramatically if I recounted 25 escapes over the Alps. Mm-hmm. So in the book you get two and they're, they're compressed. You know, Pino was caught in an avalanche during that, that era. He was, uh, he did ski a woman down off the mountain. Some people have said, well, that's impossible. No one could do that. And I was like, you got to see the size of him and how powerful he was. And, and, oh, by the way, my son could do that. Mm-hmm. My son, um, who's a big dude and a great skier, he could throw somebody up on his back and ski him off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it was those kinds of things that the characters became compressed uh, in order to give the full dramatic scope of the story. Um, so, in, you know, that's where it's fictional. You know, I had to take the incident with skiing the woman off her back, combine it with the avalanche, combine it with this, and then you get the full arc and, and certainly the emotional intensity of it. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the meeting w- when you first met with uh, Lair's daughter. Yeah, that was intense. That was uh, two and a half years ago now, three years ago. And I was working with this tremendous translator named Sylvia Fritching, who was out of Cologne. And Sylvia... Um, managed to track her down because for years I never knew what happened to Lairs after he, he had been put in a PO, POW camp and then he got released about 21 months after he was put in the camp in, uh, supposed to be in April of 1947. And I could never figure out why he was released because he was obviously a war criminal. And anyway, um, Fritching found uh, Ingrid Brooke, who was uh, Lairs' daughter, 
living in the house that he lived in after the war. And she agreed to talk to me, but she was very, very ill. She ended up passing this past year. And uh, she was very ill, and she was in her, basically in her deathbed when I talked to her. And she, I said, you know, I, I found, I know about your father through the getting out of POW camp. And I said, why was he in there? And she looked at me and she said, he was going to be tried at Nuremberg. And then she got really sick and coughing and stuff and she couldn't go on. But she gave me permission to talk to his minister and his aide. And that's when the most remarkable stuff came out. Because I was able to understand what happened to him after, why he got out, at least their explanation of why he got out. And um, it was absolutely the most remarkable afternoon I've ever had as a as a journalist writer oh my gosh I can't even begin to imagine uh, right? the complexity and the dynamic of all of those relationships and the impact that it may have on all of those people's lives uh, yeah well wow. you know they they saw layers as um, a fundamentally good person you know they they the minister and the aide never knew exactly what he was going to be tried for Huh. And it's not my conjecture that it was slavery um, because he had taken slaves, uh, over a million of them, under his control in Italy. Um, there were approximately 11 million uh, in the, all throughout the German system that were taken and put into you know forced labor, as they called it. Um, but it was only through discussing it with them and seeing that he had this other side uh, you know, layers had sides that were redeemable. I mean, he built a church after, with his own money, after the war. Hmm. And you could argue that it was uh, recompense. It was a way of him dealing with what he had had to do. Um, but he became, in those discussions, even in my mind, he became that much more complex. Uh, I, I think I've answered it. Yeah. Oh gosh, absolutely. And I, I mean. For them to then have found out sort of the other side of the coin in, in his behavior, did they, did that change? Like, what did they say when your story kind of came out? Have you well, talked they, to them uh, since then? No, I've, I told them, you know, what I was going to write that, you know, I believed that he was involved in slavery. And they said that they believe he had testified against Albert Speer, who was Hitler's architect, the, the head of the organization, Tote, and the only uh, member of the inner circle to have escaped the hangman's noose. Um, but uh, Speer, Albert, uh, Speer was put in jail uh, in Spandau prison for 20 years for taking slaves. And it was their contention that, that General Layers had testified against him in private. You don't find mention of Layers in any of the Nuremberg trials. He's mentioned in a letter that was introduced into evidence in like the 1948 or 49 um, trial of the Krupp and Frick, which were the two big industrialists that benefited from Hitler's war machine. Like they were the industrialists that built the cannons, etc. And prior to uh, Layers going to um, Italy to become the head of the organization Tote, he was involved in munitions building where he negotiated directly with Frick and Krupp. And he's mentioned in a letter, but he never testifies. Mm. And he, and all those, all those documents are either gone or sealed. 
my gosh, there's just a, a myriad amount of stories that are, that are, you know, in a way, this is sort of, this is an incredible story, obviously, in and of itself, but it really is representative of all the untold stories, too, of, uh, you know, I mean, just how amazing this one story is and how much is missed uh, in, in so many other people's it, It's true. I was talking, there's a guy who was interested in doing a documentary about uh, me and Pino and how I came to the story and a lot of the stuff we're talking about. And he's um, done documentaries on, on um, Holocaust survivors, etc. And he faced a lot of the same issues that I faced, where by people who have gone through these horrific events will bury them to the point where they even begin to question in their own mind what happened to them. And that's certainly what, what happened to me with Pino, because mm -hmm. he would get confused and you know he would say things to, I, I don't, I, I sometimes wonder if that really happened to me or if it happened to someone else. And um, it's, I believe it's a, it's a way that people deal with psychological trauma, mm -hmm. right? Like you, you almost have to push it over there that this couldn't have happened to me or if it did, I'm not going to think of it that way. I'm going to think about it a different way for your own sanity. Absolutely. You know, so anyway, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that happens to a lot of people, right? You know, that, that from what I've been able to tell, um, there are certain Holocaust victims who are dead on, and there's certain ones that are dead on in their in their memories, and there are certain ones that experience such brutality and trauma that they couldn't manage to do it. They couldn't do it. Sure. There's a famous story about these um, women. I think it was in Okinawa that they were all blind. No, I know what it was. Sorry, I read about this the other day. It was in Cambodia during the Pol Pot regime. And there are all these Cambodian women and Laotians who are like walking around blind and they've been tested and there's nothing wrong with their eyes. And the reason is that because they saw such horrors, they commanded their eyes to shut down. That's incredible. Right? That's incredible. Right. Yeah, just... Uh, Check it out. It's all true. Massive disassociation for their own sanity, for their own survival, really. Exactly. For their own sanity, they did this. Huh. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, thank you for, for following up on this kind of a story and for the dedication and purpose and passion that you've brought to this um, to, to navigate through all the, uh, th through all the different sort of uh, forms of resistance that you found. Again, I, I'd be fascinated to watch a documentary on the story of the telling of the story because um, I think there's something truly remarkable about your, um, your journey in this whole thing for sure. Tell us a little bit about, you and I connected last week about some of the responses that you've got from the readers. What, what have been some of the, the most memorable responses that you've gotten? Well, you know, I got, I've gotten letters from people whose grandfather or father fought in World War II in Italy, uh, Americans, and they say, you know, my, my, my grandfather, my father refused to talk about it, never talked about it. And, and this, you know, helped me understand why. Um, I got an amazing one from a, a woman whose uh, father and mother were both Holocaust survivors. Her mother came out of Germany on the kinder train, which got young Jews out of Germany into Great Britain. 
And then her father escaped just before 1939 and went to Italy and lived in northern Italy until he learned that the Nazis were coming, that they were invading. And a lot of other refugees stayed where they were and were rounded up. And he took off and made his way to a camp high in the Alps and was guided over the top of the Alps mm -hmm. into Switzerland. And she said, you know, he never talked about it. I knew he, he crossed the Alps. You know, he said he, he went largely on his own, but I couldn't figure out how that was possible. Um, I knew he carried a crocheted blanket that his mother had made for him, and that's how he stayed warm. Um, but she said, you know, reading Pino's story, I really, for the first time, understood what my dad must have gone through. Hmm. And... Uh, you know, that to me is just extraordinary that I could give somebody that kind of, you know, healing and, and, and greater understanding of why their father or grandfather or grandmother or mother was the way they were. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you an example, another example. So, and this is in the book, a friend of mine that I grew up with, father, and I knew him well. I worked with him at Fenway Park. Um, he had been in World War II. He'd been in the 10th Mountain Division. He fought in Italy. He was Italian, spoke fluent Italian, and never spoke about the war. Never. And after his death, um, my friend was up in his attic digging around, you know, doing all the stuff you do when a, when a relative passes. And he finds a box, and in it is a silver star for valor from the Battle of Monte Cassino. Mm. Um, and no one knew. And it described his heroism. Mm. He never talked about it. Mm -hmm. You know, and what I found over the years of, of just talking with people, if people start boasting about war and what they did in it, it's usually bullshit. Mm -hmm. It really is. Um, people who have actually seen combat and these kinds of things, they don't talk about it. They never want to talk about it. Yeah. You know, um, so that you know, that's that's one of the big things that I that I learned is that, uh, and that I was able to do with with the book is that. All sorts of people have written to me about, you know, various relatives and, you know, people. My my family got out of Italy another way. They made their way to Portugal. Um, another, my aunt got to Switzerland with a smuggler. You know, they, they, I think for a lot of people, because of the silence, you know, that, that the story resonates with them. And plus, he's an amazing person, you know, and, and his perspective on life is phenomenal. And uh, I think his willingness to open up uh, or unwillingness to open up and the fact that I forced him to uh, created such emotional resonance that people were responding to it. Well, but, so I keep kind of going back to this a little bit with you and, and your story behind this too because as, as Pino's wife said, I mean, we've known these people. You're living with a stranger in a way, like you said. Right. Um, yeah. what advice do you have to anybody that, uh, still has a relative that's alive that may have some of these stories that you found was, was effective in getting them to, to open up a little bit? You know, people deserve to know. People need to know what happened to you. And, uh, even if you find it somewhat humiliating or it's something you don't want to think about, it's important that we recall these stories and we never forget um, and that's what I did with Pino. I said, you know, pe people deserve to know what you did. Because, again, he would always downplay stuff. Oh, I don't know about this. And, 
you know, it wasn't that big a deal. And it was a big deal because it was, as soon as you would get the details out of him, you'd realize the scope of what happened to him and it would just be stunning. And uh, I just said, people need to know your story and they, they need to know about you. So, and it, because he changed me, his story changed me. It brought me back from Italy that first time, a very different person. And I vowed to tell his story to as many people as I could. I meant, to, you too. I meant to ask you uh, earlier, what, in what way did you feel fundamentally changed? Well, I learned that even though we all face tragedy, that every moment of life is a miracle. Every day is a miracle. And when you treat that as such, you realize that tomorrow can be a better day, that we have to have faith in the miraculous you know, events of a life, and we have to celebrate it. I think the worst thing you can do is take a tragedy and use it as an excuse for the rest of your life. Um, I certainly don't look at my brother's death the same way as I did. Um, I looked at it as a waste, and yet it so profoundly ripped me apart that I was able to open up and talk to a 78-year-old man and get him to open up. You know, men, men don't talk, right? And and I was able to do that, and I think it was because I was touched by tragedy, as he was. Mm -hmm. I, I was gonna. I was thinking about that too when you mentioned that his wife never really got these stories. I mean, how much of that was just uh, one man coming to another man, sharing in that tragedy and understanding things in a way that perhaps uh, a woman who hasn't gone through similar tragedy may not be able to relate to. Yeah, I think there's something of that. Um, you know, he first, you know, first told the first snippets of the story to a man relatively his age, Robert Dalendorf, who was an American businessman who happened to be in Italy 16 years ago and befriended Pino. And one night after they'd known each other, I don't know, five or six days, and they were, they were same age, different parts of the war. And Bob says, so Pino, what was World War II like for you? And Pino hesitated and, and said, well, Maybe it's time people know. And he just started telling the story. And Bob was floored. I mean, absolutely floored that the story had never come out. And he set out to try to document it and write it. But he wasn't, you know, he was a businessman. He's not a writer. Mm -hmm. But by him doing that basic work and hearing the, the basics of the story, like, you know, Kazal Pina, Father Ray, the Gropera, um, the General, etc., um, I... I was able to take that as a, as a, a basic roadmap to look at it and to, and to try to, okay, is this right? Is this true? Is this right? And, uh, you know, we, we went through it, as I said, the first time for weeks, you know, to get it. We traveled all over Northern Europe, went and saw the various locations so I would understand how it worked. And, you know, I think the fact that, that Bob had sort of cracked the lid, it allowed me to take the lid wide open. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Well, I, I, uh, I feel like I could sit and chat all day. I want to hear all, all the intricacies of, of, of the whole uh, unfolding of this whole thing, but I know you need to run a little bit too. But I do want to ask you one, one final question. Uh, I was looking on uh, Amazon. You have over 6,200 uh, uh, feedback 
on on the book, um, most of which are five stars. Do the one stars ever ever bother you? Do you ever go and read the one star reviews? You don't do it. No, I, I read them. Oh, you do. I, I, they never bother me. Yeah. You know, I, I'm of the belief that uh, greatness, and and I'm talking in terms of his story, always brings out the haters. Sure. So if you get people who are, you know, hating on you, uh, you know you're doing something right. And that's sort of an old journalist thing. Um, if I had people screaming at me from both sides, I knew I'd done my job correctly. Mm-hmm. So people come out and they, it's, it's, it's always interesting to me too, is that the one stars usually can't spell um, or they have some irrational reaction to the story. Um, and I just start, I usually start laughing. Yeah. But what I try to focus on is that 80, given on a given day, 84 to 85% of the reviews have been five stars. They love it. They love the story. They love Pino. And um, that's, that's what I focus on yeah. is that uh, I did something good. And it was I, my favorite three-star review, I'll tell you that. And I think it's my favorite review of all of them. And it ha- happened relatively early on, and it was from an Italian man. And he said something to the effect of, yes, Mr. Sullivan is a very good writer, but like, let's face it, without the great Lella, he is nothing. Mm. said, dead on. Mm. With that, 100%. Mm. Without Pino Lella, you know, this story would not have resonated. I could have written something to the best of my possible ability, but... His story is what is the magnet. It's what people are floored by. Well, I, I can certainly appreciate that perspective. I would I would counter that a little bit by saying it takes somebody to understand this magnificent story. It takes somebody to track it down. It takes somebody to have the perseverance. It takes somebody to, to be the key to unlock all of this and to share it. And I, I think when you – when I – when I think about somebody approaching somebody that has these deep stories within them, your ability to almost confront them with this really isn't about you. This is a, this is a, this is a humanity issue that we need to know what happened and it's important. I mean, it takes a certain backbone to do that. So I, again, thank you for, you know, being a bulldog on this and, and staying on it for a freaking decade. That's amazing. So yes, I mean Pino is is a quite worthy tale, of course. But um, to to track that down, I think is very admirable. And I again thank you for that, and thank you again for your time, Mark. This has been uh, truly a a very eye opening experience. And like I said, I'd love to keep talking to you about it. Well, I appreciate it, and I appreciate those thoughts. Um, you know, I I am proud of the fact that I never gave up. I, I am. Uh, there were times where I would throw up my hands as this is too difficult. Uh, but I, I had a genuine passion for the story and I had a passion for the fact that people didn't know what uh, happened in Italy. And uh, between those two things, it just kept me with my nose down and, and willing this story into existence. Mm-hmm. Did, did you say that this was going to be turned into a movie or no? Is that, where yep. are we on that? We we are very very close. Um, oh man, I, that's that is exciting. Very exciting. It is. I I've 
you know, Bob, Dale Endorf, and I, and Pino always had this dream of seeing it up on a screen, and it looks like it's going to happen. So it's fantastic. Yeah, that's very exciting. Thanks again, Mark. Very appreciated. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Cheers. Take care.